Hi there, Karen here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. As a result, you may experience varying microphone levels. Thanks for understanding, and thanks for listening. Hey you, thanks for listening to Working Overtime. Before we get to today's episode, we have a really exciting announcement to make. We're now on Patreon. Whether you've just discovered the show or are a longtime and loyal listener, check out patreon.com slash working overtime to learn how you can become a patron and support our content. As a patron, you'll have access to a wide array of bonus content, chances to interact with Karen and show guests, and even hop on episode recording sessions with us. Check out all of the great benefits of patronship at patreon.com slash working overtime. Now let's fire up the time machine. It's November 1941, Surrey, England. War rages in Europe, Hitler's threat omnipresent. Your name, Molly Rose, appears in all capitals at the top of the telegram. You've taken it to the privacy of your room. You know what this message might convey, and you don't want prying eyes around. You read it, then read it again. It's so short. At least, they're concise, you think. And there it is. Your husband, Bernard, a tank commander for the army, is missing. Presumed dead. You hate that your first thought, which you banish from your mind as quickly as it blooms, is, of course he's dead. At first you can't move. You can't even think remotely clearly. Just your name and his are there, glaring back at you from that sickly yellow piece of paper. You lay it on the bureau. Then a new thought stirs. Bernard was a good man, a good husband, and a good patriot. And he did his part. You grit your teeth. Now it's time to continue doing your part, as you have been doing. As a pilot licensed to fly some 36 different aircraft types, you still have a lot of work to do. If Bernard's fight might be over, well, yours, definitely not. The war needs you. Your country needs you. There's a knock on the door. Mary, a familiar voice calls. Your next assignments come through. You take a deep breath heart heavy with uncertainty, but you move decisively to answer your duty. As you'll remark later on, sitting around just waiting for news, it's no tonic for anyone. Hey there, it's Dr. Karen Bellinger, anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome back to Working Over Time where we examine society by exploring the work that we do as humans over time and across cultures. And what a week it's been. And although it was totally unplanned, there's kind of a perfect correlation between today's topic and other work I've been doing. I'm cooling my heels right now in an airport hotel, heading home from an amazing few days shooting a story for the Science Channel, focused on the pivotal World War II contributions of Scotland's Orkney Islands. Now, if you haven't heard about this choke point in the Allied war effort, or even of the Orkney Islands, don't feel bad. I mean, 
I went into this knowing far more about the area's ancient history, which is frankly any archaeologist's dream. The Orkneys are literally the heart of ancient Britain, where 5,000-year-old stone circles like Stonehenge dot the landscape, and nomadic hunter-gatherers first experimented with settled life in the British Isles. They were farmers sowing the seeds literally for modern urban life as we know it. This tiny North Sea archipelago off Scotland's mainland also happens to form a perfect, natural, deep harbor. It's both highly defensible and strategically positioned to control a key Atlantic entree to continental Europe. So Orkney defenses supported ally war efforts in much the same way that the gutsy aviatrix Attagirls, who star in this week's episode, did. And it's no exaggeration to say that World War II might have ended really differently without their courageous contributions. But before we taxi to the runway, I want to give a huge shout out and a virtual high five to our new patrons on Patreon. Huge thanks to Maddie, Jay, Matt, and Kara for supporting the show. We hope you're enjoying all the special perks of patronship. Finally, on today's episode, we're pulling a 180 degree turn from last week, going from six feet under to way above the clouds. Historian and archaeologist Georgina Dorothy is here to tell us all about the astonishing early 20th century woman aviators with some critical 19th and even 18th century groundwork. Pilots, engineers, project managers. Was there anything these ladies couldn't do? Well, if you're a woman, you already know the answer to that. So, let's explore the multifaceted, multi-talented lives of these aviators against the backdrop of a time that sparked the rise of the modern aviation industry in Britain and far, far beyond. Georgina is an English archaeologist and sociocultural historian. She wrote her undergraduate dissertation on Brooklands, a motoring and aviation museum in Surrey, England, that was the world's first purpose-built racetrack and the birthplace of the British aviation industry. In addition to volunteering at Brooklands, Georgina lectures on archaeological and historical subjects on cruise ships, in YouTube videos, on podcasts, and she works in heritage licensing and product collaborations inspired by the United Kingdom's royal palaces. Georgina loves to explore the tangible histories of people and civilizations, and she's especially passionate in her quest to tell the stories of women whose stories have yet to be told. Thank you so much for joining us today, Georgina. Thank you so much, Karen. I'm so excited to be here. And yeah, so hi, everyone. Okay, Georgina, you're going to kick us off today with the 101 on our subject. Where are we in the world and when? I am starting off in with our central point around Brooklands in Weybridge in Surrey, um, which was the world's first purpose-built race course um, anywhere in the world. And during the First and Second World War, the aviation industry in Britain really took off here, literally, and from the runway. So I'm going to focus on the ATA pilots of the Second World War, of which one in eight were women, and really focus on their work in to help 
their allies during the Second World War in combat and deliver aircraft throughout the country ready for the combat pilots. To start off with in aviation, we have to first talk about the men and women who first went up into air and left the ground. And that started way back in 1784. Wow, really? That long ago? Yeah, literally the same time, the same year as the American Revolution um, ended. So the war, the US War of Independence. So that takes us back into context of how long ago people were in the air and were they using like Leonardo da Vinci contraptions? I mean, of course, I just I just think about the Wright brothers. Literally, yeah, that's so amazing. And that would have been kind of prototypical airplanes, I take it. <laughs> yeah, so this is actually the hot air balloons um, that were ah. mainly focused in France for quite a number of decades. So that was Marie Elizabeth Thibault was the first woman, the first woman to fly into the air and the first woman in aviation, a huge modern achievement from Lyon in France. And she was the first to fly untethered in a hot air balloon. The balloon was named La Gustave in honor of King Gustave III of Sweden um, when he visited Lyon. And this was groundbreaking for Marie. And she was dressed as Minerva, the Roman goddess of oh. wisdom, which I think just sums it up really. <laughs> That's amazing. Like she, she knew what she was achieving and then to say, yeah, I'm as great as the Roman goddess of wisdom and war. And as a woman, she was really thinking about what she was doing, but what she was wearing and how she was presenting herself. That's incredibly modern. And this idea of somebody so self-consciously presenting themselves to the viewing public in a persona. Exactly. It's like early day celebrity, isn't it? <laughs> Right, that that's an incredible basis for our discussion. That that women were uh, groundbreaking back in the very origins of what we could think about as as aviation. So, I'm going to ask you to jump ahead a few hundred years and tell us why aviation and particularly the involvement of women in it uh, emerged in Brooklands at the time that it did. Of course. So, one of our icons at Brooklands is Hilda Hewlett who was born in 1864. So Hilda was the first woman to co-found a flying school in the UK with Gustave Blondeau. And they had a successful aircraft manufacturing business, Hewlett and Blondeau, which made over 800 airplanes and employed 700 people. So she was born in Vauxhall, London, and she really thought, do you know what? I, this is a new industry for me. A, a new industry for the world and she just looked up at the skies and thought I want to be up there and so being a late Victorian early early Edwardian woman she attended the National Art Training School in London where she trained in needlework quite typical of a woman for those days but also woodwork and metalwork which was nearly unheard of but that really helps with her aviation industry, aviation engineering future. So she could use the, she interpreted all her needlework, metalwork and woodwork skills into the manufacturing of some of the greatest early aircrafts ever. 
Um, she was also an early, early bicycle and motorcraft enthusiast. She was quite incredible in her, in her foundation of where she wanted her career to go. And she married Maurice Hewlett in 1888, where her, the Hewlett um, name comes from. And they had a daughter called Pia and a son, Francis. And she actually taught her son how to fly too. Oh, wow. <laughs> Amazing. So, yeah, she was the first woman in the world to teach their child to fly. So second generation family industry is brilliant. Um, and unfortunately, her husband was not as progressive as her in terms of uh, how a woman should, should be, should conduct themselves. And he actually said, women will never be as successful in aviation as men. They do not have the right kind of nerve. And was he an aviator by any chance? I believe he was. <laughs> oh, okay. I was, I was just going to say, well, I certainly hope at least he'd been behind the, you know, the windscreen of an airplane himself to issue such an absurd proclamation. Exactly. So obviously Hilda thought, well, do away with you. And they split in. Yeah, I was going to say, hopefully that was the end of the marriage. <laughs> that was. And during the First World War, she ran her flight school and she even taught Tommy Supworth, who was quite an incredible um, pilot for Britain. Um, Is that he, of the Supworth camel fame? Yes. Yes, that's him. That's Tommy Supworth. So his teacher was Hilda Hewlett which is wow. amazing. So she, she maybe isn't known quite for directly what she did, but she, she definitely paved the way for a lot of other people as well. And how did the opportunities that Hilda carved out for herself here in Brooklyn compare to opportunities for women in aviation elsewhere in the world at this time? Do, do you know? I mean, was this really unique worldwide? During the First World War also, at the same time as Hilda, was Marie Marvinck um, from France, who flew in combat during the First World War, and she completed bombing raids over Germany for the French War Ministry. And oh, she was wow. well, yeah, like the one of the early women in combat in yeah, the First World War. And she was also the world's first flight nurse. So as well as her incredible aviation skills, she was ready and on hand to help anyone who was injured that she could get, get to as well, which was quite incredible. Amazing. All right. Well, I think that we're convinced of the absolutely pivotal role of women in early aviation. I mean, in a way I certainly had no idea about. So let's let's just kind of jump in the plane with one of them or, or onto the tarmac when they're preparing for a day of whatever it is they would do as an early woman aviator. Um, Georgina, can you, can you just kind of walk us through the beginning of, of a day for one of these women at Brooklyn's? I'm going to focus on Mary Wilkins, Mary Wilkins Ellis, who was an ATA pilot during the Second World War. So we've skipped another two decades. The job of ATA pilots was to taxi planes from the factories such as Brooklyn's across the 
across England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. And the Air Transport Auxiliary in the Second World War was a British civilian organisation set up um, at White Waltham Airfield, which was their headquarters. They ferried new, repaired and damaged military aircraft between factories such as Brooklyn's and sent them to assembly plants. Some of the some of these were also at air ambulance work. In the ATA were 16 ferry pools, of which one initially was for women. And these women were called Atta Girls. Like, Atta Girl, you did it. Oh, <laughs> I think that's oh really? Wonderful. And so that comes from the ATA? I'm not sure whether that's where it comes from. Oh, oh, so funny. That was my, my first thought. Sense. Oh, I, I love that. Atta yeah. Girls. So yeah, they were Atta girls. So yeah, well, it, I don't know for sure, but I, it probably would come from that actually. That's what, 80 years ago. And I think that's just wonderful. And their, their slogan was anything to anywhere. And they would send, well, they would fly um, these aircrafts many throughout the day to different sites throughout the country. Um, and they flew 415 hours throughout the war, delivering 309,000 different aircraft. 309,000? Literally. <gasps> That's crazy. Yeah. And a third of the aircraft, um, about a third of the aircraft flown in the Second World War was made at Brooklyn's throughout their factories and of which many of these women working in the factories were yeah many of the people working in the factories were women and they jumped at the chance to have a career the the men were all at war or working on the land that they thought you know what we'll step in we can do this and these women were not going in to be in the history books they weren't in to become heroes they were going in for equal rights and a career they were thinking yeah we can do this and so in the ata there were 168 female pilots and throughout brooklyn's there was quite a couple of thousand women working on making these planes as well as throughout the throughout the world as well we've um, i've got some info about one of the american aircraft um, american hangers as well. That's a really substantial number of women who were either flying aircraft during World War II or building it and participating in that production process. That's astonishing. Literally, like it's incredible. And so going back to the ATA women, they, um, they'd started out in the Second World War doing the exact same job as the men in the ATA, but receiving 20% less pay. And they were like, no, we're flying. We're flying these aircraft. They have the outer body of proper fighter planes that no one will, no um, enemy, let's say, enemy, is that kind of the right word? No, no yeah, yeah, somebody who's likely to shoot at them wouldn't know there's a woman inside. <laughs> exactly. They wouldn't they wouldn't fly towards the plane and think, oh no, that's not a that's not a proper pilot, that's not a fighter pilot. We won't shoot at them. They would think, oh, there's a British plane, let's shoot them down. So these women were saying, 
well, we deserve equal pay. Our lives are at risk too. And there's actually knowledge that some of the people who they spoke to about this, they said, yeah, but the men need the money because the money will be going to their wives and families if they die. Oh, these women God. were saying, but I've got a career, like this is my life. And I've been able to do this because I'm not married and I've not got a family to look after during the war. So I'm looking after my country. Oh. And what's incredible is it only took them 18 months of campaigning to get equal pay. That's actually impressive that they managed to get it. Good for them. At a girl. This was the first company for the British government to get equal pay in the whole of Britain ever for women. These women were heroes in more ways than one. So could you, could you tell me a little bit um, about what the daily routine of one of these women would have been like at Brooklands? Absolutely. So I'm going to focus on Mary Ellis. Mary Ellis passed away in 2018, aged 101, having had such an incredible life um, as an ATA woman and further on in the world of aviation throughout her life. So during the Second World War, she was in a pool of women based in Hamble in Hampshire. And throughout the war, she flew over a thousand planes, of which there were 76 different types that she flew including Harvard's hurricanes, bombers, and Spitfires, to the point she actually was called the Spitfire Girl. How common was that? So this is what I love about the ATA. These women were trained and knowledgeable about so many different types of aircraft because they would, this was one of Mary's actual days. They would get their chitty in the morning, which was their form of their official document of what they would be flying. Chitty. I love it. What, was that like slang for something or? <laughs> so a chit is kind of like an official document, but a short one saying you're going here, there and there. And so they, they'd have a little dis- discussion as they'd arrive in the office saying, Mary, here's your chitty today. And she'll be talking to Molly saying, oh gosh, I've got a Wellington bomber or oh, I've got some <gasps> Spitfires. I'm so excited. Oh and my gosh, I love that. <laughs> wonderful. And apparently there were little wheels of joy saying, oh yes, I've got my favourite aircraft today. Um, so one of Mary Wilkins' days was a Ventura VFN957 from Eastleigh to Cosford. Then a Hudson V1FW895 from High Urkel to Eastleigh. Then she would taxi an Anson, she would taxi Anson 9596, where she'd have four passengers on board from Cosford to High Urkel. And then there was an overnight stay at the second all women's pool, which was in Cosford. So she'd go to a number of different places throughout the day. And sometimes she'd get overnight stays. They'd occasionally have a flight, let's say, um, they might have a Tiger Moth, which was one of the slower planes. It was an earlier aircraft that was still in use. And they might have that, say, from around London to around Glasgow in Scotland. And that could take nearly three days going um, flying, flying up, flying a few. That only went about 60 miles an hour. 
and they'd obviously wow. have to. Yeah, that almost sounds like that wouldn't be fast enough to stay airborne. <laughs> exactly. That was, um, yeah, totally one of the early, early ones that they'd say, great, well, I've got a few overnight stops. What do I do? And the ATA would give the girls one pound, um, which at the time was quite a hefty sum. And they, they said, we used to turn a good profit if we'd um, find somewhere quite cheap to stay. And they'd be like, so then I'd go out to the pub and get a drink, which was still pretty unheard of for a woman at those days as well so yeah they definitely had a great time and in the evenings and um, especially when they were in Hampshire they were quite near the Canadian and the American bases for the soldiers and they often said yeah we used to spend spend some evenings at the discos and just hanging out with the male pilots and um, and what I think's incredible having read um, Mary's um, autobiography they these women were so ahead of their times that they um, they went out and they partied with these American men Canadian men who they would have never have met if it obviously wasn't for the war and they had such a great time that Mary and a few other women have actually been known to say well we did we did what we wanted like we were here for the war and it was all part of the war effort. And of course, if you've been flying close to enemy attack near the Battle of Britain and around that time, you would want a party in the evening and you would want some fun. And she went, but I never told my future husband. And I think, <laughs> <quite> wonderful. <laughs> oh, yeah. Some, some secrets are, are timeless and across cultures. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So, and that's basically how how their days would go, um, and yeah, they they just had so many women. So there were eight women who were the first the first women in the ATA. Yeah, these are such local stories that I've grown up with, having lived grown up only about a mile from Brooklyn. So that we used to go as a child, like on school trips, and then I volunteered there, which I yeah I, I volunteered there. Um, and I love it just being in the aircraft hangar and occasionally I'd we'd get visitors who are in their 80s and 90s who actually flew in the war and they would come and see like the Wellington bomber that we have there and they'd come and see the Spitfires and say yeah yeah I used to take these away and God, oh, that's amazing Germany and I'd be stood there in mesmerized in absolute awe thinking I've I've worked next to this plane for years and now I'm meeting someone who's actually flown it and um, so it's wonderful occasionally I've been able to sit in them myself so that's really exciting too um, but one of my favorite things about Mary and um, sorry this is going back to her day but um, one of my favorite things about Mary was she absolutely loved Spitfires and she flew a couple of hundred I think during the war and one of them she really felt connected to that she said it was one of the best flights of her life and she she said I don't know whether you could fall in love with an aircraft but she did it and so I think it's amazing upon landing she actually signed the aircraft Um, and she so she signed her name in the door and she said, I, I will be reunited with this aircraft, if not a pilot one day during the war will see my name and come and seek me out. And um, well, 
a couple of decades later, um, the, this Spitfire, this particular Spitfire during the Second World War had found its way all the way to Australia. And then it went into local museums in Australia and was acquired by different people. And in the 80s, it was then acquired by um, a man who was an aircraft enthusiast in England, and he had it brought back over to England. And while him and his teams were restoring the aircraft, they found Mary's name. And he thought, I think I know that name. I've heard of her. And he got in contact with her and Mary was reunited with her Spitfire, aged, I don't know, about 80. And um, she said, gosh, yeah, I knew I was going to be reunited with it one day. And I just think that's incredible. What a story. Oh, I love it. I love it. So how did these amazing women like Mary get involved in this? Was there any sort of recruitment process? And you mentioned um, aviation schools, but I how, how did women learn to fly at this time? Yeah, so in this time, in the early 19th century, it was, it was quite a privileged um, hobby, in a way, to have, that these women, these women learned to fly purely because they wanted to and their family had the money that they could do it. So they, one particular woman was Amy Johnson, who... Is quite, is quite renowned and in the 20s and 30s she was like an, an acrobatic pilot and she also was a pilot in, in circuses like acrobatic circuses and touring the country and she was quite a celebrity for her day and she was actually then brought into the APA for her, um, for her physical prowess, for her, for her knowledge of so many aircraft and um, she, she actually, um, yeah, Amy Johnson actually, um, during the Second World War, was shot down, which is qu still quite a conspiracy theory today. In the Thames estuary, so just at the end of the Thames, um, near London, and she, she um, was, yeah, her body was never found. But also, they don't know who was in the plane with her. But they believe it could have been a spy. No one really knows. So I think that's oh. really interesting. Um, and there's, yeah, so many women were just social pilots that suddenly at the beginning of the First World War, social flying was not allowed anymore. And they thought, well, I need to fly. Like, I need my wings. So um, I need the freedom. So, yeah, they joined the ATA because they thought, yeah, this can let me keep flying and I can help with the war effort. And they were called just doing their bit. They were doing their bit for the country, doing their bit for the war. Do we have a sense of, of what women and others in society broadly outside of their ranks thought of them? Mainly on their clothing as well, I think, is really shows what was thought of them joining this very male-dominated world. They, at first, they didn't have a uniform, whereas many other like the RAF had their uniform and these women were thought, no, you don't need a uniform for the ATA. You're just taxiing a few planes around. And then they managed to get a uniform, which was similar to the RAF. They were then 
told that the ATA will pay for your uniform and they would be made by tailors on the high street. Some would go to Savile Row, which is still a very famous um, tailoring. That's um, high end, right? Exactly. Very high end, which just shows the background of some of these women as well. And they were paid for by the service. And some, so it was kind of their first semi-private purchase that they may have ever made as a woman before then it might have been through their family money and they were they suddenly got a salary as I said now equal pay as well so it's amazing that these women were the very first to achieve parity in in pay in in Britain for sure um you know was this a, a position that that people would have you know, coveted? Would it have been a desirable thing to do, whether because of the kind of money one could earn or or just the fact that it was so out of the norm for gender expectations? Definitely. This was a very coveted role um, because these women had their their knowledge, their, their experience in aircraft. And actually the ATA was very sought after, but also in a way, yeah, with gender roles, they, these women were saying, we can, we can go fight in the war now. Look, you've seen us for a couple of years flying. We can head to Germany now. We can help with the war effort further. And actually the British government said, no, ladies, you're staying in UK's air, airfields. Um, you're not flying over to Europe. And they were saying, well, why not? Why not? And basically... The British government didn't want the the Nazis to know that Britain were running out of pilots, male pilots. So they thought if we send in women, they'll think we're not we're we're losing. We're we're running out of oh. manpower. So yeah, these women for Britain anyway never never saw combat themselves. But um, however, Russia under Stalin. He believed um, that both genders should share the battle against against a European foe. And Russia's all-women air crews were quite extraordinary to the point that um, Lydia Litvak, who was also known as the White Rose of Stalingrad, she shot down the Luftwaffe ace, Owen Mayer. And he came over when he was shot down and said, show me the man who shot me down and apparently had a little bit of a heart attack when he saw Lydia. I love it. <laughs> Which I think is wonderful and he said no I don't believe you and it was only when she described exactly what she had done, how his plane had been, how she'd shot him that he went oh gosh that was you. So yeah. Oh, I love that. That is an amazing, amazing story. <laughs> How was this um, cadre of woman pilots, the ATA pilots, organized? Was there um, any particular ranking system? You know, and who were they actually answerable to in the day to day basis? Yeah. So it was Pauline Gower who was in charge of the women section these women were very aware that they were representing women pilots but also women throughout the war effort that they were very conscious that if they did a step wrong if they crashed a plane or 
anything, they would be held more accountable than had a man done it because there was one there was one incident where a woman hadn't seen that there was quite a dip on one of the runways and it broke one of the wings as she landed at one of the um, one of the airfields and literally it, everyone was first on her to be like oh god this is why women shouldn't fly and <laughs> she was very conscious of if she's done something wrong the whole pool gets held accountable and um, so they they definitely had that but um, throughout the ATA they had women from Britain, Canada, USA, Australia, so many countries and then Argentina and Chile which is was Margot Duhald who was they named her Chile and it was and then it was Maureen Dunlop from Argentina who was photographed um, on the post press magazine for um, as she landed on a plane flying her hair um, when she took off her helmet and that photograph was then put on the cover of Vogue um, in the 50s so yeah these women were yeah quite amazing <laughs> celebrities oh, amazing. so so amazing um and how did these women balance work home responsibilities uh, you mentioned at one point um that at least most of them were unmarried. Do we have any examples of any married women with families who perform this job? I know that this, a number of these women were married and a number of them were married to pilots as well who were out flying and out of combat. Um, and there are a few women actually in the ATA who were in their forties and in their fifties who had been flying since the early days so we can only assume that they would have had their families as well at home. And I do know Mary Ellis, um, she had a few flights that went, went to Bryce Norton, which was one of the RAF bases. And that was less than a mile from her family home. So occasionally she would land and say, right, I'm having three days off and I'm just going to go back to the family farm. And she would, her father would be, and her father and, and family would be helping grow grow food for the country and she'd think right my day's off I'm going to go help help with the war effort in that way so the war never really stops for them. Georgina how were women involved in the work at Brooklands on the ground? You mentioned that that some women were also involved in the assembly and production processes could, could you tell us a little bit about how that worked? Aircraft production increased at Brooklands um, in the mid-1930s, when the political climate was becoming totally uncertain and Britain was gearing itself up for what they believed would be another war, which, which happened. So they had on-site lines of military aircraft, which are way to transport to air bases when they were being manufactured. And we've got photos of literally full-on assembly points of... Wellington bombers by the hundreds. Kathleen Beldam was a, one of the women who joined who joined Vickers Limited, which was the aviation department at Brooklands. So at Brooklands, women and men, of course, would be welders. They'd be building aircraft, and they would um, they would have a production line that dozens of people would be working 
on each plane at a time. And there were hundreds of planes being built. And Vickers, the Vickers factory, also had a department at Fox Warren Park, also in Weybridge, and also in Kingston. So these three places quite near each other were all focused on building building these aircraft ready for the war effort. And they, like, I would love to see what my town looked like during the Second World War, because they, they said that suddenly at four o'clock on a Friday, they'd all finish early and you'd see hundreds of people on bicycles just cycling out into the town on their way home and going for a Friday night drink and a celebration for the weekend, thinking, yeah, we've just sent 300, 500, 1,000 aircraft into the skies ready for the war. And so, yeah, it was quite a national, um, sorry, quite a local pride in my area that um, there's still roads today called Vickers Way and there's Blerio Street and they're all named after pilots or there's yeah Sop, Sopwith Close and they're all named after <laughs> aircraft that were were fundamental during the Second World War. We've talked a lot about how wartime seems to have been a key driver of this movement of women into aviation, the aviation industry in Britain. What do we know about, you know, what happened to these historic women aviators after World War II? Yeah, so many stayed in aviation and the ATA, the Air Transport Auxiliary, did cease to ceased to continue after the Second World War. But Mary Ellis, for example, she stayed in the RAF and she actually moved to the Isle of Wight, which is a small island just to the south of England and quite near Portsmouth. And she she became the manager of the Isle of Wight airport. Like, oh, wow. She was, she was the first woman in Britain to have that high um, accolade in the aircraft industry in um, in a commercial sense. So yeah, they they knew what they loved and they kept going with it. And there's such a lovely um, photograph of the, from I think it was the 90s that I've seen, where many of the ATA pilots all formed back together again for a reunion, the men and the women, and there were 15 of the women who are still still surviving and they just like they had like they had such a lovely time obviously with without the communications that we have today through facebook and instagram and everything these women did lose touch but they i know i know from different memoirs that i've read that they they've all said oh how funny we've all gone into such similar yet different industries um, throughout their lives and they've led they led such different lives from the war that they were very proud of what they achieved as well they should be yeah and let's talk about the legacy of these women um you know uh, even leading into sort of modern aviation do, do you see any sort of direct lines that we might draw between what these women accomplished and what's going on with women in aviation today? Absolutely. 
I only read the other week that um, quite recently, Madeline Swagel, um, she she's now in the US Navy as the first tactile jet pilot. In 2018, for International Women's Day, um, British Airways and a number of a number of aviation countries, uh, aviation companies throughout the world celebrated with all women flights. So the this particular one from the British Airways was celebrated with a flight from London Heathrow to Glasgow with 61 women involved. And this ranged from baggage handling, pilots, cabin crew, flight managers, loaders and pushback teams and even the check-in and airport teams as well. And the captain was Julie Levy and EasyJet and a number of um, a number of commercial flights in America and I know Saudi Arabia have recently um, had an all-women flight, um, an all-women crew flight and this actually happened before some of those women were even allowed a driving license but they could fly a plane. Oh wow, oh my gosh. You know, listening to you, it is absurd. Let's just, let's just cut to the chase there and as amazing as this is, and it's exciting, I, I kind of can't help but think as a woman myself, you know, this is 2018 people is, should it be a huge deal that there's a flight going in which all of the personnel are female? I mean, it's just a little sad. I have to say it's great, but really, uh, how nice will it be when it doesn't have to be a particular celebration that that is marked as Literally, like, incredible. So what do you call a woman who flies a plane? What do you call a woman who flies a plane, Georgina? She's a pilot. <laughs> She's a pilot. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so well, who are these Girls With Wings? What, what is that program about? Yeah, so Girls With Wings is a program by Linda Meeks, um, in the States actually and it's quite incredible it's a whole it's a website and it's a company that really focus on showing girls from such a young age that you you can be anything you want anything you want to be and these they're children's books about girls who fly there there are toys like like um, dolls that are pilots and to really show them through play and through education that their career in 20 years time or however long can be anything and that that can be in aviation. And I, I get so inspired by so many of my friends and my contemporaries seeing women of their 20s, 30s, 40s that are cabin crew, that are pilots, that... I have a friend who, um, Sarah and her twin Katie, who work for Rolls-Royce and they literally build engines for aircraft and they design them. And they've actually designed aircraft um, engines that have gone into space. Like they work on rockets and I'm like, yeah, my friend works on rockets. Like, and I don't think my, my mum or my grandmother would have ever said, oh, I've got a girlfriend who works on rockets <laughs> or planes. So yeah, I think the world is definitely evolving in that sense, which is great to see. And it's partly because of these women who 
100 years ago, nearly 200 years ago, looked at the sky and thought, yeah, I want to be up there. As an archaeologist, you study objects from the past and, you know, use them to kind of understand a little bit about the people who made and used them. What's been most impactful to you as you've researched this development of aviation technology and the women who are involved in it, you know, from that archaeological perspective? Maybe not quite the women in this sense, but I did excavate in Germany near Nuremberg, um, which was a Halifax bomber, which was so amazing. This was in 2015. And so then we, yeah, we were excavating and the, the aircraft had been discovered a number of years before and there'd been a few excavations around it. And to really hear the stories from families, from the descendants of the, the seven men who were kind of, sh- they were shot down during, during that flight, three of which survived and became prisoners of war. But to really hear their personal stories from their families has, it's very much the emotional side of archaeology as well that I love, that hearing stories that are still so modern in a way, that it's history that is accessible to us. And the, the women in history, um, however near or long ago, um, are stories that, yeah, I hope to share like this. I love it. It's great. Yeah, it is. Um, it is the great power of archaeology, the way that it lets you tap into sort of the stuff of everyday life, um, yeah. you know, kind of against all odds, because it's really hard to do. <laughs> um, what's been the most interesting insight that you've gained in your research on these women aviators? Most interestingly, I think, um, have you heard of the Stinson Airport in San Antonio in Texas? I don't know that I have. Could you tell us about it? Yeah, so Catherine Stinson was the fourth American woman to earn her pilot's license. And she opened with her mother. So, yeah, two generations of women. They opened the Stinson Aviation Company and they leased 750 acres of land in San Antonio, Texas. And that's now the Stinson Airfield, which is the second oldest airport in the USA. So I'm literally discovering new things through this research, which I'm so loving that I'm moving over from Brooklyn's and looking even more globally. That's fantastic. And yeah, tell us about that. What, what are the questions that, that you still have or, or new questions that you've um, uncovered as you've done this research about these women? What I hadn't known was Mary Wilkins' childhood growing up, and she lived right by the Mitford sisters, who were quite controversial women of their their day. That during the during the thirties, when tensions were rising, they were actually um, hosting a a political circle that were seeing the tensions rising in Germany, and actually hosted um, Hitler and Goering um, as guests for dinner parties. And Mary Wilkins often said the irony that I grew up 
obviously not meeting them, but knowing that these parties were happening just down the road and within a decade later, and that I was then helping rally against them um, is just the, iron uh, the irony of how a decade or two can change, change a country and change a world. Georgina, we've talked so much about the experience of, of many different kinds of female aviators and those involved in um, the productive side of, of aviation over centuries, really. So million dollar question, would you have made a good aviator? And if so, which century do you think? I would absolutely love to. Um, I would love to have been in aviation. And to be honest, if one day I would love to be able to fly a plane, just even as like a small two, two people, I definitely couldn't do the one person. I think I'd need someone with me um, to have been around in the 1930s, 40s and 50s at a time when women were taken a bit more seriously and it was really, really like, yeah, we can do this. We can go fly a plane. And um, abroad, women were going out and in combat and that really paved the way for the RAF and the, the Navy and the Marines who yeah had pilots how how that changed for today really georgina thank you so much for taking the time to share your knowledge and your passion for this subject of early uh, women aviators at brooklyn's with us thank you so much for having me i've so enjoyed this karen and thank you so much for your team and this has been wonderful so thank you Molly Rose left this world on October 16th, 2016, at the age of 95, 20 years after her husband, Bernard Rose, passed away. That's right, he made it. He hadn't died in combat after all, but he did serve as a POW until the war ended in 1945. After her own incredible wartime work, Mary was reunited with him. And while they may not be household names, the legacy of ATA pilots like Mary, the Atta girls, simply can't be overstated. Not only did they manage to break through tired gender barriers of old, but they became role models for today's increasingly diverse modern aviation workforce. Their contributions to the military efforts of their time helped secure Allied victories in World War II, and they helped prevent untold further devastation. Because of these amazing women, more little girls can gaze up to a plane passing overhead and see themselves at the helm, soaring above the clouds. Hey there. You can follow today's guest on Instagram at Georgina underscore Dorothy underscore. In case you didn't know, we're on Twitter at WorkingOTSeries with plenty of exciting show updates and additional content. You can support the show and gain access to loads of bonus content at patreon.com slash working overtime. Consider leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help get the word out. And of course, share the show with the fellow time travelers in your life. Until next week. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with past preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aiden Law Liberty, and Raz Cunningham. 
Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on social media for additional content and show updates at Working OT Series on Twitter and Working Overtime Series on Instagram. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Thanks so much for listening.